0: Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us. So, I remind you, you're listening to our recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers, L.A. are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so we've got uh, one Israeli story to kick us off here. From the world section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, July 12th, 2023, Israelis block streets, highways to protest judicial overhaul. Lawmakers' overnight vote on a bill to rein in the Supreme Court sparked demonstrations across the nation by Julia Frankel. Jerusalem Thousands of Israeli protesters took to the streets Tuesday, blocking major highways and thronging the country's main international airport in countrywide demonstrations against the government's plan to overhaul the judicial system. The demonstrations came the morning after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's parliamentary coalition gave initial approval to a bill to limit the Supreme Court's oversight powers, pressing forward with a plan that bitterly divided the nation. Netanyahu's ultra-nationalist and ultra-orthodox allies have proposed a series of bills that have provoked months of sustained protests by opponents who say the country is being pushed toward authoritarian rule. Anti overhaul activists demonstrated throughout the day, including a protest in the afternoon at Ben Gurion International Airport. An estimated 10,000 people gathered outside the main hall, blowing horns and waving blue and white Israeli flags. Police kept the crowd from entering, and travel was not disrupted. Civil War. I think you're going that way if they're not going to stop, protester Adi Somax said. Mass protests have taken place since Netanyahu's far-right government presented the overall plan in January, days after taking office. The protests led Netanyahu to suspend the overhaul in March, but he decided to revive the plan last month after a compromise talks with the political opposition collapsed. The parliamentary vote overnight Tuesday gave fresh momentum to the protest movement. Police used a water cannon to clear protesters who blocked a main artery leading to Jerusalem. Officers arrested several others who had obstructed a highway next to the central city of Modin. Demonstrators blocked a main highway in Haifa with a large banner reading, Together We Will Be Victorious, snarling traffic along the beachfront. A protest outside Netanyahu's home in central Jerusalem was planned later Tuesday. Police reported 66 arrests nationwide. Protesters scuffled with police in various locations, but no major violence was reported. Netanyahu's allies say the proposed changes are aimed at weakening the excessive powers of unelected judges. The changes include giving the allies control over the appointment of judges and giving parliament power over to, uh, to overturn court decisions. The legislation advanced Tuesday aims to strip the Supreme Court of its power to review the reason a reasonability of government decisions a safeguard that proponents say is needed to prevent corruption and improper political appointments the Netanyahu government which took office in december is the most hardline ultra-nationalist and ultra-orthodox in israel's 75-year history his allies proposed the sweeping changes to the ju- to the judiciary after the country held its fifth election and under four years all of them seen as a referendum on NetYahu's fitness to serve as prime minister while on trial for corruption. Critics of the judicial overhaul say it will upset the country's fragile system of checks and balances and concentrate power in the hands of Net Yahoo and his allies. They also say NetYahu has a conflict of interest because he is on trial for charges of fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes. A wide section of society, including reserve military officers, business leaders, LGBTQ plus people, and members of other minority groups has joined the protests. The unrest has unnerved foreign investors and caused the currency, the shekel, to drop in value. On Tuesday, 300 reservists from the military's elite cyber warfare unit signed a letter saying they would not volunteer for service because the government has demonstrated it is determined to destroy the state of Israel. Sensitive cyber abilities with the potential for being used for evil must not be given to a criminal government that is undermining the foundations of democracy, the letter said. Fighter pilots and members of other elite units also have threatened to stop reports for duty. Anand Bar David, head of the country's National Labor Union, the Histarut, threatened to a general strike that could paralyze the country's economy. If the situation reaches an extreme, We will intervene, and employ your strength, Barr David said, calling on Netanyahu to stop the chaos. The Historoute called a general strike in March as the government pushed the judicial overhaul legislation through the parliament after weeks of protest. The move shut down large swaths of the economy and helped contribute to Netanyahu's decision to suspend the legislation. That was Israelis blocked streets, highways to protest judicial overhaul. By Julia Franco, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, for Wednesday, July 12, 2023. Frankel writes for the Associated Press. And on to other international news. This one is from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 9, 2023. Zelensky hails troops on war's 500th day. By Philippe Dana. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky marked the 500th day of the war Saturday by hailing the country's soldiers in a video from a Black Sea island that became the symbol of Ukraine's resilience in the face of the Russian invasion. Speaking from Snake Island, Zelensky honored the Ukrainian soldiers who fought for the island and all other defenders of the country, saying that reclaiming control of the island is a great proof that Ukraine will regain every bit of its territory. I want to thank from, the, from here, from this place of victory, each of our soldiers for these 500 days, Zelensky said. Thank you to everyone who fights for Ukraine. It was unclear when the video was recorded. Zelensky was returning from Turkey on Saturday. He announced that five commanders of the defense of Astovstal's steel plant, a grueling months-long siege early in the war, were returning on the plane with him. The sprawling steelworks was the last bastion of resistance as Russian forces took control of the port of city of Marupol. Its defenders became renowned among Ukrainians for holding out in wretched conditions in the plant's tunnels and corridors. A- Azovstal's more than two thousand defenders left the steelworkers in May 2022 and were taken into Russian captivity. The five leaders, some of whom were part of the Azov National Guard Regiment, that Russia denounces as neo-Nazi were freed in, September, prisons, uh, in, a, were freed in a September prisoner swap and taken to Turkey. Under the exchange, the leaders were to remain in Turkey until the end of the war under the Turkish president's protection. There was no immediate official explanation from Ankara or Kiev about why they were allowed to return to Ukraine. Russian forces took control of Snake Island on February 24, 2022, the day Moscow launched its invasion, in the apparent hope of using it as a staging ground for an assault on Odessa, Ukraine's biggest port, and the headquarters of its navy. The island took on legendary significance for Ukraine's resistance when Ukrainian troops there reportedly received a demand from a Russian warship to surrender or be bombed. The answer supposedly came back, go F yourself. The island's Ukrainian defenders were captured, but later freed as part of a prisoner exchange. After the island was taken, the Ukrainian military heavily bombarded the small Russian garrison there, uh, forcing the Russians to pull back on June 30, 2022. The Russian retreat reduced the threat of a seaborne Russian attack on Odessa and helped pave the way for a deal to resume Ukrainian grain exports. Let the freedom that all our heroes of different times wanted for Ukraine and that must be won right now be a tribute to all those who gave their lives for Ukraine, Zelensky said. We will definitely win. Intense battles continued to rage Saturday in the country's east and south as Ukrainian forces pressed their attacks against multi-layered Russian defenses in the initial stages of their counteroffensive. Ukraine's interior ministry said a Russian rocket strike on the town of Lyman killed eight civilians and wounded 13 others early Saturday. Pavlo uh, Kribilenko, the governor of Ukraine's eastern Donetsk region, posted images showing some of the dead, including a body lying under a bicycle, saying that the Russian terrorists are continuing to strike civilians in Donetsk. Lyman is a few miles from the front line, where Russian troops have recently intensified fighting in the forests of Crimea. The UK Ministry of Defense said in its latest intelligence update that the eastern town of Bakhmut that was captured by the Russians in May has seen some of the most intense fighting along the front in the last several days. It said that Ukrainian forces had, have made steady gains to the north and south of Bakhmut, Noting that Russian defenders are highly likely struggling with poor morale, a mix of desperate units, uh, de- desperate units, and a limited ability to find and strike Ukrainian artillery. Among the fighting, Russia and Ukraine accuse each other of planning to sabotage the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear plant power plant, which is Europe's largest, fueling fears of a radiation catastrophe. Ukraine's military intelligence claimed Saturday that Russian troops have planted more mines around the plant, a claim that couldn't be independently verified. The head of the United Nations nuclear agency, Rafael Mariano Grossi, told the Associated Press on Friday that the International Atomic Energy Agency experts had recently gained access to more of the site, including the cooling pond and fuel storage areas, and found no mines there. Grossi said he was still pushing for access to the rooftops of reactors where Ukrainian officials accused Russia of planting explosives. On Saturday, Russian Defense Minister Sergei Sho- Shoigu was shown visiting firing ranges where volunteer soldiers are being trained, a trip that comes two weeks after an abortive mutiny launched by mercenary chief Yevgeny Przin, Prez- 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 whose Wagner troops marched on Moscow in a bid to oust Shoigu. Prezogin agreed to end the mutiny, which represented the biggest threat to Russian President Vladimir Putin in his more than two decades in power, in exchange for an amnesty for himself and his troops and permission to move to Belarus. On Saturday, Russian messaging app uh, channels ran comments by one of Wagner's commanders, Anton Yelizarov, who said the mercenaries had taken leave But would eventually deploy to belarus battles along the front line in ukraine are raging as nato leaders are set to meet in vilnius lithuania for a two-day summit this week to offer more help in modernizing ukraine's armed forces create a new high-level forum for consultations and reaffirm that ukraine will join the alliance one day ahead of the north atlantic treaty organization summit the U.S. has announced that it will provide Ukraine with cluster munitions, a move that President Biden described as a difficult decision. Two-thirds of NATO members have banned the munitions, which have a track record of causing many civilian casualties. But the U.S. sees their delivery as a way to help bolster uh, Ukraine's offensive and push through Russian, through Russian front lines. Ukrainian Defense Minister Alex- Alexei Reznikov hailed the U.S. move, saying that the delivery of cluster munitions would help the country de-occupy its territories while saving the lives of the Ukrainian soldiers. Reznikov said Ukraine would use the munitions only for the de-occupation of its territory and would not fire them at Russia's proper territory. He noted that the munitions would not be used in urban areas. That was Zelensky Hale's troops on war's 500th day. By Philippe Dana, from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 9, 2023. Dana writes for the Associated Press. And here is something from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, July 10, 2023. U.S. will listen to China's concerns, Yellen says, at the end of Visit to Beijing. By Joe McDonald. Beijing. Treasury Secretary Janet L. Yellen on Sunday said... She agreed Washington will listen to China's compl- Chinese complaints about security-related curbs on U.S. technology exports and might respond to unintended consequences as she ended a visit to Beijing aimed at reviving strained relations. Yellen defended the defended targeted measures on trade that China's leaders complain are aimed at hurting its fledgling tech industries. She said President Biden's administration wants to avoid unnecessary repercussions, but gave no indication of possible changes. Relations between the two biggest economies are at their lowest level in decades due to disputes about technology, security, and other irritants. A key Chinese complaint is limits on access to processor chips and other U.S. technology on security grounds that threaten to hamper the ruling Communist Party's development of smartphones, artificial intelligence, and other industries. We will open up channels so that they can express concerns about our actions and we can explain and possibly in some situations respond to unintended consequences of our actions, Yellen said at a news conference. Yellen talked with China's number 2 leader, Premier Li Kuang, and other officials during 10 hours of meetings. She had a five-hour session Saturday with her Chinese counterpart, Vice Premier He Lefeng, Treasury officials said in advance. There were no plans for her to meet President Xi Jinping. Yellen received a warm welcome and prominent coverage by the state press, but Chinese officials gave no sign they would change industrial or other or other policies that Washington and other governments say violate Beijing's free trade commitments. On Saturday, he said Washington should adopt a rational and pragmatic attitude to improve relations. On Sunday. Yellen announced no agreements on major disputes or plans for future activity, but said her departments and Chinese officials uh, would have more frequent and regular communication. U.S.-Chinese political strains are adding to uncertainty that is dampening the willingness of consumers and businesses to spend and invest. China's economic growth rebounded, to 4.5% in the first quarter of 2023 from last year's 3% after anti-coronavirus controls on travel and business activity were lifted in December. But factory activity and consumer spending decelerated the quarter ending in June. Xi accused Washington in March of trying to hold back China's industrial development. Beijing has been slow to retaliate for U.S. technology restrictions possibly to avoid disrupting its own industries. But three days before Yellen's arrival, the government announced unspecified controls on exports of gallium and germanium, metals used in making semiconductors and solar panels. China is the biggest producer of both. Yellen said she tried to reassure officials that Washington doesn't want to decouple or separate its its economy from from China while it tries to de-risk trade. The Biden administration is pressing semiconductor makers to to move production to the United States to reduce reliance on Taiwan and other Asian suppliers, which is seen as a security risk. Washington wants to develop alternatives to Chinese supplies of rare earth elements, metals used in smartphones, wind turbines, and other products. They have expressed some concern that de-risking amounts to decoupling, Yellen said. She said she tried to assure my Chinese counterparts that this is by no means the same thing. The de-risking involves attention to clearly argulated and narrowly targeted national security concerns, as well as broader concern with diversifying our supply chains, which the United States is doing in a few important sectors, she said. Throughout her visit, yellen appealed for a healthy economic competition a reference to complaints beijing violates its free trade commi- comm- commitments by subsidizing and shielding politically favored industries from private and foreign competition yellen said she had expressed concern to chinese officials about coercive activities against u.s companies that follows raids on consulting firms and the detention of staff members without explanation and what the u.s government says is arbitrary detention or prohibitions on people leaving china that some complain are used to pressure them in business disputes chinese leaders are trying to revive investor interest but foreign companies are uneasy about their status after z and other officials called for economic self reliance The ruling party has also expanded an anti-spying law that has fueled uncertainty about what law firms or consultants can do. On Saturday, Yellen appealed to He for cooperation on climate change, the debt burdens of developing countries and other global challenges. Beijing broke off climate discussions with Washington in August in retaliation for a visit by then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan the self-ruled island democracy claimed by China as part of its territory. Biden's climate envoy, John F. Kerry is due to become the next senior official to visit China this week. China and the United States are the world's top uh, emitters of of climate change carbon. China China signed an agreement last month to restructure the debt of Zambia, including billions of dollars, uh, lent to under Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative to build ports and other infrastructure across Asia and Africa. Treasury officials pointed to that as successful cooperation. That was, U.S. will listen to China's concerns, Be- Yellen says As it end, at end of visit, A Visit to Beijing by Joe McDonald from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times for Monday, July 10, 2023. McDonald writes for the Associated Press. Okay, moving back to the U.S., we have a couple of stories here. Uh, both of these are actually from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, July Fourteenth, 2023. First, we have this one. Slain Gunman's phone had data on Nazis' violence from the Associated Press. Indianapolis. The cell phone of a 20-year-old man who fatally shot three people last year at an Indianapolis-area mall contained photos of Adolf Hitler, Nazi propaganda, firearms, and extremely graphic videos of previous mass killings, police said Thursday. Police said the FBI found nothing on the phone about the mall or plans for last year's mass shooting, but it contained what appeared to be a suicide note Jonathan Douglas Sapperman had written more than two years before the attack. Greenwood police said the FBI was able in May 10, in May, to unlock the phone, which Sapperman dropped into a mall toilet before he opened fire, inside the food court of Greenwood Park Mall last July 17. Sapperman was fatally shot by an armed shopper shortly after the shooting began in the city just south of Indianapolis. Police said the FBI recovered 200 videos and 3,400 images from the phone, along with notes kept on the device, call and text logs, and internet searches. Many of the videos were of mass shootings that were extremely graphic in nature, police said, including one of a 2016 attack that killed five at a mall in Burlington, Washington. The FBI also found photos of Hitler and Nazi propaganda on the cell phone. The FBI's findings came after police said in December that Saverman was fascinated with Nazi Germany and had posted more than 700 comments on social media about mass killers between 2017 and 2022. Police said the most notable discovery on the phone was a photo taken April 9, 2020 of an apparent suicide note written by Sapperman. The handwritten note begins, my final thoughts on paper and goes on to say, I'm a sociopath, I want to hurt people. Police said the note alludes to Sapperman shooting himself with a with a shotgun. Police said Sapperman's note more than two years before the shooting leads us to believe that Sapperman's homicidal and suicidal thoughts had been manifesting for years. Sapperman's ex-girlfriend had told investigators that he told her he didn't expect to make it to age 21 and that if he killed himself, he would take others with him, police said in December. Also found on the phone was a note written less than a month before the shooting that was apparently uh, a draft of the text Sapperman intended to send to, to send his brother, according to police. In that June 18, 2022 note, he wrote, I'm going to shoot myself. Police previously said that data on Saperman's laptop were, were destroyed after he placed it in an oven set on high temperature with a butane tank before the shooting. But the FBI was working to determine the phone's password, a process that could take years. Although the three slain victims were Latino, Greenwood Police Chief James Ison said in December that there was no indication that the shooting was racially motivated and authorities had not determined a specific motive for the attack. The shooting killed married couple Pedro Panetta, 56, and Rosa Marion Rivera de Panetta, 37, and Victor Gomez, 30. However, Ison said Previously, that Sapperman's ex-girlfriend told investigators he was racist toward African-Americans and Latinos because of bad experience he had, experiences he had with people in those races while he was growing up. An armed bystander, 22-year-old Elisha Dickon of, of Seymour, Indiana, who had been at the mall shopping with his girlfriend, fatally shot Sapperman after police said the gunman fired 24 times within 15 seconds. That was slain gunman's phone had data on Nazis' violence from the Associated Press. Out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 14, 2023. And again from the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 14, 2023. Synagogue shooter can face death penalty, jury decides. Testimony to shift to effect that the attack had on survivors and victims' loved ones by Peter Smith. Pittsburgh. The gunman, who killed 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue in 2018, can face the death penalty, a federal jury announced Thursday, setting the stage for further evidence and testimony on whether he should be sentenced to death or life in prison. The government is seeking capital punishment for Robert Bowers, who raged against Jewish people on online before storming the Tree of Life synagogue with an AR-15 rifle and other weapons, on the nation's deadliest anti-Semitic attack. The jury agreed with prosecutors that Bowers, who spent six months planning the attack and has since expressed regret that he didn't kill more people, had informed the requisite legal intent to kill. Bowers' lawyers argued that his ability to inform intent was impaired by mental illness and a delusional belief that he could stop a genocide of white people by killing Jews who helped immigrants. Bowers showed little reaction to the verdict, in keeping with his demeanor through the trial. In the courtroom gallery, survivors and victims' relatives heeded the judge's request to keep their emotions in check. Testimony is now expected to shift to the impact of Bowers' crimes on survivors and the victims of loved ones. It has been nearly five years since 11 people were taken from us. They were beloved and valued family members, friends and neighbors. They cannot speak for themselves, and so their family members will speak for them. Maggie Feinstein, director of 1027 Healing Partnership, a program helping survivors of the rampage and others who were affected, said in a statement after the verdict. Bowers 50, a truck driver from suburban Baldwin, killed members of three congregations who had gathered at the Tree of Life Synagogue on October 27, 2018. He also wounded two worshippers and five police officers. Bowers was convicted last month of 63 criminal counts, including hate crimes resulting in the death and obstruction of the free exercise of religion resulting in death. His attorneys offered a guilty plea in return for a life sentence, but prosecutors refused, opting instead to take the case to trial and pursue the death penalty. Most of the victim's family supported that decision. If jurors decide Bowers deserves to die, it would be the first federal death sentence imposed during President Biden's administration. Biden campaigned on a pledge to end capital punishment, but federal prosecutors continue to pursue the death penalty in some cases. The penalty phase of Bowers' trial began June 26. Jurors heard weeks of technical testimony about Bowers' psychological and neurological states with mental health experts for both sides disagreeing on whether he had schizophrenia, delusions, or brain disorders that played a role in the rampage. Bowers ranted incessantly on social media about his hatred of Jews, Jewish people before the 2018 attack and told police at the scene that all these Jews need to die. He told psychologists who examined him afterwards, including as recently as May, that he was pleased with the attack. The sentencing now shifts to a more emotional stage with jurors expected to hear about the pain and trauma Bowers inflicted on worshippers in the heart of Pittsburgh's Jewish community. The prosecution will also present evidence about other aggravating factors, including that Bowers' rampage was motivated by religious hatred, and the defense will present mitigating factors that might persuade jurors to spare his life. The defense case could include pleas from his relatives. To put him on death row, jurors will have to agree unanimously that aggravated factors outweigh the mitigating ones. In final arguments Wednesday, prosecution and defense lawyers took turns attacking the findings of the other's expert witnesses, doctors who testified about Bowers' mental condition, and whether he could form the intent to commit attack. Uh, uh, Prosecutor Sue Song said Bowers' meticulously plot and the plot, plot, meticulously plotted the attack over a period of months. On October 27, 2018, this defendant violated the safe Holy Sanctuary that was the Tree of Life Synagogue, she said. He turned it into a killing ground. But Bowers' defense lawyer, Michael Burt, cited <coughs> expert witnesses to bolster the claim that a delusional belief system took over his thinking, which left him unable to do anything other than following the dictates of those delusional thoughts. Burt argued that Bowers' ability to form intent was also impaired by schizophrenia and epilepsy. Song denounced the idea that Bowers lacked control of his actions. She noted that Bowers told one of the defense's own expert medical witnesses that he meticulously planned the attack, considered uh, other potential Jewish targets, and regrets that he didn't kill dozens more. U.S. Attorney Eric Shen said Bowers wasn't delusional, but that he just believes things that are repugnant. That was synagogue shooter can face death penalty jury decides by Peter Smith. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 14, 2023. Smith writes for the Associated Press. Right. right, let's move on to some entertainment news. This is from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Sunday, July 9, 2023. A pharmacist's wild, drug-fueled debut, Ruth Madievski drew from her professional experience and her family's immigrant past for an L.A. set book by Jim Ruland. Ruth Madievski doesn't seem to have a, a high tolerance for risk. Sitting at her dining room table in a tidy Santa Monica apartment, the author exudes serenity as she discusses juggling a job as a clinical pharmacist with her writing career, while her three-month-old infant naps in the next room. You'd never guess that the characters in her debut novel, The All-Night Pharmacy, blaze a trail across Ellie's bar scene under a haze of benzos, opioids, and psychedelics, risking death or degradation at every turn. Whenever I'm asked if the drug uh, used is fictional, Madievsky tells me, I always say, it's fictional, so fictional. Madiasky does draw on her knowledge of pharmaceuticals to paint a realistic portrait of what it's like to have one's life go off the rails to destructive drug use. In her intimate tale of two sisters, the unnamed protagonist is alternately compelled and repulsed by the toxic narcissism, narcissism of her older sister Debbie, a wild child who works in a strip club and is so alive it was scary. Under Debbie's influence, the younger sister embarks on an odyssey of questionable decision-making, from shacking up with the guy she meets at a bar to cooking up a scheme to peddle pills scammed from the clinic where she works. The sisters haunt a club called Salvation House, uh, called Salvation, housed in what used to be a Christian bookstore, where their favorite pastime is roping strangers into playing a game of wealthy patron uh, in which participants confess to how much money they would accept in exchange for engaging in degenerate behavior. As the novel pro- progresses, the deeds get dirtier and the price gets cheaper. Although pharmacy cra- uh, crackles with the-, the energy of Hubert Selby Jr.'s Requiem for a Dream or Patrick DeWitt's Absolutions, Maddievsky's knowledge of drug store- of drug lore is strictly professional. She would like you to know she has no experience dealing Class A drugs, and she has a few other misconceptions to clear up about her profession. She does not count pills, nor does she work in a CVS. She works in a clinic with uh, patients, and she sees on a regular basis her specialties uh, are HIV and primary care. It's very rewarding, Madewski says, because I'm helping to make people's lives better, and it re- it's really nice for my writing, too, because I have uh, crap writing every day. At least I know that I did something good in the world. She does worry colleagues uh, might take her writing the wrong way. Medievsky has also published a poetry collection called Emergency Break, or more specifically, She worries that regulators at the California State Board of Pharmacy might conflate her character's predilections with her own lifestyle choices. In part, that's due to the fiction's high level of verisimilitude, from L.A.'s dives and ratty apartments to the predictable patterns of addiction. I really didn't want to write about everything that either I hadn't personally experienced or people that I was in community with hadn't experienced, Medievsky says because I feel like it's so easy to do harm if you're conjectured about what a marginalizing experience is like. Yet the novel is more than an L.A. drug story. The relationship between the two sisters is just one of the book's many threads, which include the narrator's fraught dealings with her mother, who experiences a series of mental health crises uh, related to the horrors her parents endured in the former Soviet Republic of Moldova novel also explores the eroticism of the narrator's first same-sex relationship, and it takes a darker turn when Debbie goes missing. It's a detective novel. It's an immigrant novel. It's a queer coming-of-age novel. It's a sisterhood novel. It's just like when you go to a pharmacy, Madievsky says, they have everything. Hence the title, which was suggested by a friend. Originally, it was prescriptions, which I thought was so clever, Medievsky says. Because it has a double meaning, it's both medication and advice, and the narrator is consistently seeking counsel on how to be a person. Despite the multifariousness, All Night Pharmacy is not a shaggy dog story. It pulses with intensity as its characters struggle to find their way. The taut narrative is driven by Medievsky's razor-sharp prose, which she attributes to her background as a poet. I, I bled over every word, every description, Mandievsky says, because I feel like when you're writing poetry, the pursuit of beauty trumps anything else. You can abandon any form, any narrative in pursuit of something that feels true, even if it destroys everything that came before. There are passages in Emergency Break that anticipate the novel. In the poem Halloween, the narrator endures a night out at a bar with her boss while her mind drifts like a clairvoyant Molly Bloom on benzos. All my life, I've been about as carefree as a soft peach. In a pile of broken glass, my hand always twitching towards the Ativan bottle. Despite her achievements in poetry and prose, Madievsky has little formal training as a writer. After she received her undergraduate degree, she enrolled in USC's four-year D program, which was followed by a year-long residency. I knew I was going to be a pharmacist, just like my mom, from the time I was eight or nine, Madievsky says. Her parents arrived in L.A. from Moldova as Jewish political refugees when Madievsky was two years old. She lived in an apartment near Fairfax and Santa Monica in a Russian diaspora district with her parents, her grandparents, and her great-grandmother, whose husband was murdered by the KGB. Madievsky recalls growing up in a neighborhood where shop signs were in Russian and English and old men played chess in the park. At some point, I wanted to be a writer more than more than I wanted to be a pharmacist, Madievsky confesses. But her parents insisted she get her pharmacy degree in case they had to move again and start over somewhere else. You have to have a backup, they told her. In this respect, All Night Pharmacy is somewhat autobiographical. The protagonist, her sister, and her mother are all wrestling with the knowledge that their forebears endured unimaginable suffering so they could uh, prosper in the United States. This incalculable debt starts to feel like a chokehold when the sisters fail to make the most out of their opportunity. I was interested in the ways that historical traumas affect people who are several generations removed, Madievsky says, and might not even know that they're reacting in some way to those traumas. Rather than dabble in the self-destructive behavior of her characters, Madievsky has learned to channel her ancestors' experiences as both a healer and a storyteller. Near the middle of the novel, the protagonist embarks on a journey to Moldova that has echoes of a trip the author took to her homeland. I have mixed feelings about using them in fiction, Medyavsky says of her family stories, but my prevailing feeling is I want to memorialize them somehow, especially because every time I hear them, the stories are a little different. There's a lot of, oh, everyone who remembers is dead, so there's no one to ask. I have felt this responsibility to keep those stories alive. That was a Drug Pharmacist Wild Drug Fueled Debut by Jim Ruland. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, July 9, 2023. Ruland's most recent novel is Make It Stop. All right, and we have this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, July 14, 2023. Iger says unions need to get real. Disney Boss Addresses Labor Demands Taking on an ESPN Partner and Spinning Off ABC by Stephen Battaglio. As Hollywood actors get ready to join the Writers Guild of America on picket lines, while Disney Company chief executive Bob Iger had some harsh words Thursday about the walkouts set to further paralyze the entertainment industry. Hours before SAG-AFTRA's national board was set to vote on a strike, Iger told CNBC's David Fa- uh, Faber that the guilds are not being realistic in their demands. He said their actions come at the worst time, as studios struggle to adapt to the disruption of the media landscape, including the transition to streaming video, uh, the decline of traditional TV and an uncertain economic climate. It's very disturbing to me, Iger said. We've talked about disruptive forces on this business and all the challenges that we're facing and the recovery from COVID, which is ongoing. It's not completely bad. This is the worst time in the world to add to that disruption. Without providing specifics, Iger said the expectations of the writers and actors are just not realistic and that their job actions are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing that is, quite frankly, very disruptive and dangerous. Iger's remarks came shortly after SAG-AFTRA leaders announced that the Guild's negotiating committee had voted unanimously to recommend to the union's National Board of Directors that they formally approve a strike which could begin as early as Friday with picketing likely to take place in Los Angeles, New York, and other cities. The Writers Guild of America walked out on May 2nd, grinding much of the scripted entertainment production to a halt. SAG-AFTRA and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Pet Producers, which represents the studios, remained far apart on key contract issues and sources familiar with the negotiations who are not authorized to comment and requested anonymity. Like writers, actors are seeking to boost the residual payments they get when shows are distributed on Netflix and other streaming platforms. Both guilds are looking for safeguards around the use of AI. Iger said he respects the desire of the guilds to get the best deal for for their membership, but reiterated, you also have to be realistic about the business environment and what the business can deliver. Iger also revealed that he would consider taking Disney out of the linear TV business as viewers rapidly shift to direct-to-consumer streaming services. Disney owns one of the major broadcast networks, ABC, and cable channels that include ESPN, FX, Nat Geo, TV, and Freeform. Iger, who returned as Disney's CEO in November and now has agreed to stay on through 2025, said he is open to spinning off ABC, and its own stations as viewership and revenues continue to decline. The executive has long been pessimistic about the future of linear television, but his remarks are the clearest indication uh, yet that he is ready to throw in the towel. Iger said he also would consider taking on a a strategic partner uh, for sports network ESPN, which remains highly profitable, but is plagued by the ongoing trend of consumers bypassing cable and satellite subscriptions for streaming apps. With every household that cuts the cord, ESPN loses subscriber revenue. Disney executives have already said the uh, the future of ESPN is is as a direct-to-consumer streaming service. A partner may help accelerate that process. If they come to the table with a value that enables ESPN to make a transition to its direct-to-consumer offering, then we're going to be very open-minded about that, Iger said. And that was Iger Says Unions Need to Get Real by Stephen Battaglio from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, July 14, 2023. All right, now here is a story from a website called uprocks.com. U-P-R-O-X-X, and this is called Ben Platt Would Prefer Not To Be Asked About The Whole Nepo Baby Thing, by Jessica Toomer, Contributor, for July 14, 2023. Ben Platt is a Nepo Baby, N-E-P-O, but for the love of Barbara Streisand, please don't say that to his face. In a recent interview with Rolling Stone, the Dear Evan Hansen star, shared the inspiration behind his new mockumentary comedy, Theater Camp. The indie he, he stars in with a friend and co-writer, Molly Gordon, the bear, follows a group of children's theater directors trying to salvage their final show of the summer. It looks hilarious, mostly because it doesn't mind poking fun at the grown-ups who take this whole show business thing a bit too seriously. But it sounds like Platt doesn't have skin quite as thick as his character in the film. During the Rolling Stone chat, Platt was asked for his thoughts on the Nepo baby conversation. Uh, Platt's father is famed producer Mark Platt, the man, who, the man partly responsible for Legally Blonde, Wicked, and a host of other beloved movies and Broadway shows. Naturally, having an industry heavyweight as, as a parent would have, would have opened up doors for Platt, something he could have gracefully acknowledged and then moved on from when questioned about this connection. Instead, this happened. After sidestepping the question from Rolling Stone writer E.J. Dixon, Platt went on to answer a few more questions about his own Jewish summer camp experiences before his publicist intervened once more, ending the end his interview 20 minutes sooner than planned. The actor's sensitivity over the whole Nepo baby label has naturally prompted Twitter users to drag him for having, among other things, an inflated sense of ego. You were on the cover of New York Magazine's Nepo Baby issue. I'm curious, what was your response to that? And what did you make of the whole uh, discourse? We're going to skip right over that if we can. No comment? Publicist intervenes. If we could just focus on theater camp, that would be great. Thank you. Ben Platt answered questions about being a Nepo Baby. LOL, Ben Platt had months to come up with a response to Nepo Baby questions that didn't make him come off as out of touch And this is what he went with? Ben Platt is mad, mad, L-M-A-O. It's weird that Ben Platt is so sensitive about this because his dad produced some really great movies. Why not just say I'm so lucky I got to be around people making stuff as cool as Legally Blonde growing up? It had such a huge influence on me. Ben Platt's ability to turn himself into the least likable person every single chance he is given needs to be studied. Interview, sir, you're a Nepo baby, Ben Platt. Ben Platt, when you ask him to comment on being called a Nepo baby by, by boy magazine, and that and that is, Ben Platt would prefer not to be asked about the whole Nepo baby thing by Jessica Toomer, contributor from UpRocks.com for July 14, 2023. All right, let's move on to some articles from a publication called J Living Mench Issue 2023. And so we will start off with uh, this one from the Michigas Kosher Style section. And this uh, first one is called Kosher Salt, The Real Scoop. Did you know that table salt is just as kosher as kosher salt? The term kosher on salt packaging actually refers to the size of the uh, the salt crystal, not its cash root status. Table salt is made from mine deposits and undergoes a refining process to remove impurities. It is often enriched with iodine for added nutrition. Kosher salt, on the other hand, is a coarse salt that has historically been used in draining blood from meat to adhere to kosher laws. While it may not be inherently kosher, the larger grain size facilitates the extraction of blood during meat preparation. However, not all kosher salts are actually kosher, so it's important to look for the Hesher kosher symbol to ensure it meets kosher standards and doesn't contain any non-kosher additives. That's kosher salt, the real scoop. This next one is called Is My Oven Kosher? All appliances are not the same check out GE's latest ovens, uh, ranges, and refrigerators that often enhance Shabbos mode. With the Shabbos Keeper's built-in Jewish calendar, every Shabbat and Jewish holiday will be set for your needs. The application can automatically control your refrigerator's interior uh, lighting, automatic defrost, compressor and cooling system, door switch, and sensors. For ovens, the application will allow you to open the door at any time, even when the oven is running, and can go into automatic warm mode or cycle between warm and bake schedules for your Yom Tav meals. In 2021, the Orthodox Union proudly announced that GE Ovens with this technology became the first ever certified kosher ovens for use on Shabbat and Yom Tav. That's Is My Oven Kosher? This next one is kosher is going up. According to future market insights, The kosher food market is thriving and on the rise. Its value of over $42 billion in 2023 is expected to reach more than $78 billion by 2033. FMI's research found that the growth in demand is not limited to the Jewish market, but is coming from all religious communities. The study highlighted that people are becoming more health conscious and seeking wholesome allergen-free food products. Which is driving which is driving the increase in demand uh, for our kosher food. Furthermore, new consumer segments are placing their trust in the authenticity of kosher food. That's kosher is going up. This next one is kosher MREs. When a U.S. Navy ship is about to set sail and kosher meals are needed, uh, Labroute goes into action. Labroute meals is the only approved supplier of kosher rations by the Department of Defense worldwide and supplies ready-to-eat kosher meals to all military National Guard branches. Sample Glatt Kosher MRES comes in many, many options, including chicken royale with brown rice, hickory smoked beef, jalapeno curry beef, pasta marinara, and veggie chili. We are all thankful that our Jewish service members can meet the rigorous requirements of the Armed Forces that they do not need to sacrifice their religious beliefs to stay properly nourished. That's Kosher MREs, and those are all from the Mission Glass Kosher Styles section, Author Unknown. And we move on to the notch section, <clears throat> and this is called A Diamond in the Dough by Deborah Eckerling. There's nothing better than a rainbow cookie or an almond horn Or some Russian coffee cake, Doug Weinstein, who owns and operates the Diamond Bakery, 335 North Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles, says. Weinstein took over the Fairfax staple in June 2021. The bakery became employee-owned during COVID, and they were just uh, going to let that piece of history fade away. Weinstein couldn't let that happen. I wanted to perpetuate the traditions of Jewish baking, he says. There used to be five Jewish bakers on Fairfax. Now there's this and Cantor's, and Cantor's is more of a deli than a bakery. Weinstein says, it just seemed like such a shanda to let such an iconic place with such history go. As iconic Jewish-owned businesses, as an, an iconic Jewish-owned business, the Diamond Bakery was started in 1946 by Jack and Betty Siegel. In 1969, it was sold to two couples, the Lockmans and the Rubinstein's who met in Auschwitz in 1944 before the liberation by the Allied forces. After World War II, they immigrated to the United States and landed in Detroit, where they developed their skills as bakers before relocating to L.A. Throughout the decades, Diamond Bakery expanded from a small retail operation to a fully equipped wholesale bakery. The Lotman and Rubenstein families ran the bakery for 50 years, stepping away in early 2020. It was employee run for about a year before weinstein took over i can't believe it's been almost two years weinstein says we employ 15 people and we give to the community we're here for our customers and we and we keep everything as authentic as we can a classically trained bakery pastry culinary veteran with 35 years of experience weinstein became a fan of baking and cooking when he was a little kid his aunt b and grandma lived together and they were always baking. I would walk down the street through the backyard and into their house, he recalls. They would sit me on the table and hand me cookies. They would be cooking or baking and arguing about who's doing it, the right, right or wrong. And I fell in love with the whole process, with them. At the age of 13, Weinstein got his first job washing windows and sweeping floors for the corner of pizza place in exchange for pastrami sandwiches. One day, the dough guy didn't show up. The owner, the owner said, kid, come here. Let me show you how to make the dough. So I was making balls of dough. And then the pizza guy didn't show up. So I was spinning pizzas. I just loved it. Weinstein has worked in some of the best-known establishments in Southern California, including Weston Century Plaza Hotel, Weston South Coast Plaza, Regent Beverly Hills, Regent Beverly Wilshire Hotel, Checkers Hotel, the Broadway Deli, and more. He has also used his culinary skills to benefit the Jewish community in Long Beach and most recently Santa Barbara, where he also lives. Among other mitzvahs, he established the Hala program for the Santa Barbara Jewish Federation, which delivers up to two hundred halot per week. In addition, as well as an additional baked items for our holidays and special events. Doug has also taught classes at Congregation Bene Brith in SB. Uh, temple israel in long beach and via zoom as host of get baked with chef doug weinstein was raised with Sedaka; his parents were involved with the synagogue if someone needed something my parents were always there to contribute he says and that's what weinstein learned i didn't need a bakery he says i wasn't looking for a project but i just couldn't let diamond bakery die diamond also does contract baking with, uh, for companies such as Shappi's Pe- uh, Pretzel. They supply their recipes, and Diamond fulfills the orders. Come in and give us the specification of what they want, and we, may- and we make it, he explains. I like to help people make their dreams come true, Weinstein continues. If we can get them started, and they can get to a point where it makes sense for them to get their own place, great. While Diamond Bakery is probably best known for its challah, They carry many delicious baked goods. Side note, they also have a great coffee bar with espresso, lattes, cappuccino, and great drip coffee by Peerless Coffee. Weinstein's plans include putting in a refrigerated case to display their dairy delights, such as cheesecake, rainbow cookie, seven layer cake, raspberry nut cake, sweet kugel, and more. I want to start doing traditional Jewish things with a modern twist, he explains. I also want to start featuring Jewish uh, traditional baked goods and desserts from different regions of the world. Weinstein did a Yemenite Jewish cooking class for the 8th graders at the synagogue a couple of years ago and would love to do other programs like that in the bakery. It's a way to be a little bit more creative, but also draw people in, he said. After all, it is a community bakery. One Weinstein also has been going to since he was a kid. His family moved to Los Angeles in 1975 when Weinstein was 12. I didn't really own a Diamond Bakery, Weinstein said. I'm just the current steward of it. People's memories of Diamond Bakery keep them coming back. There are are people who come in every day and say, I've been coming here since I was seven years old. My grandma would bring me in and give me a sprinkled cookie, he shares. Weinstein hopes those guests start bringing their grandkids in so they can create new memories with the next generation. Does it take a mensch to save a bakery? Probably. Does it take someone who grew up with a love of food to save a bakery? Absolutely. Doug Weinstein is both. I love baking, Weinstein says. I love the fact that I can make something beautiful and then watch people eating, eating go, oh my God, that's amazing. That was A Diamond in the Dough by Deborah Eckerling from the Nosh section. Right, move on to the entertainment section here. This is called Modi. Mordecai Rosenfeld, who has been called the next Jackie Mason, is an Orthodox Jew who happens to be married to a man by Naomi Pfefferman. The comedian Mordecai Rosenfeld, who goes by the stage name Modi, is an Orthodox Jew who happens to be married to a man and who distinctly whose distinctly Jewish act and intricate knowledge of Judaism draws sold-out audiences from Reformed to ultra-Orthodox communities as well as non-Jews all over the world. The New York Times has called the 53-year-old comic who will perform at the Sabin Theater in Beverly Hills on June 8, the next Jackie Mason. The Hollywood Reporter lauded him as one of the top 10 comedians in New York, and Jamie Masada, owner of the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles, has said that Rosenfeld... Uh, elicits the same kind of adulation as Robin Williams and Richard Pryor. Not to mention that in 2018, then New York Mirror Bill de Blasso declared June 26 Mordecai-Modi-Rosenfeld Day for his artistry and contributions to the community. During a recent Zoom interview from New York, the New York home, Rosenfeld shares uh, with, his, with his husband and manager, Leo Vega, the comic wore black. But his signature short beard And a reserved manner compared to his bold stand-up persona. The comedian said he carries a small copy of the Zohar in his pocket during performances. I'm not a comedian who happens to be Jewish. I'm a Jewish comedian, he said. On stage, I'm far more Jewish than gay. His hilarious riffs on the cultural differences between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews, as well as the Jewish perspective on TV shows such as Succession and The Crown. Rosenfeld also addresses issues of Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. In a joke that went viral online, he quipped that it's not so smart to arrange for anti-Semites to visit Holocaust museums. It just gives them ideas, he said. As for his recent DNA test, he said, Nazis and Kanye are my number one health risks. Asked if there are any boundaries he won't cross in his act, he said, I won't cross a line if it isn't funny. Even so, Rosenfeld carefully tailors his set uh, to suit his patrons on a particular night. For non-Jews, he explains more about his Jewish content. And for the ultra-Orthodox, he draws on his extensive grasp of Jewish law and culture, in part derived from his attendance at a Habad Lubavitch yeshiva as a young man. They don't need gay material, he said, of his observant fans. They need material from, uh, for their own audiences. Even though ultra-Orthodox communities view homosexual relationships as sinful, Rosenfeld said he hasn't experienced any kind of criticism except the rare troll online. If an organization told him they were uncomfortable with him being gay, he, said, he added, they won't get me to perform for them. Rosenfeld moved with his family from Tel Aviv to Woodmere, Long Island, New York, when he was seven. He said he grew up in a traditional kosher-style Israeli home. Modi was drawn to Judaism from an early age. I used to love to go listen to the cantor in, in a conservative synagogue in our area because it was like watching an opera every Sunday, he recalled. I always found books to read about Judaism and Torah and synagogue. I was drawn to it more than the rest of my family was. It was just my neshoma, my soul. Growing up, he said, he'd watched the Chabad-Libovich Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson speak whenever he recorded a televised version of his Fabergins. I was mesmerized by them, Rosenfeld said. I really felt the connection to the revving." Never mind that Schneerson believed that gay love was, was off limits. What I love about Habad is that in broad strokes, it's about helping other people, he said. On Rosenfeld's podcast, and here's Modi, co-hosted by comedian and author Periel Asherman, with appearances by Rosenfeld's husband, Viega, one real treat was interviewing the rabbi's Yiddish to English translator, Rabbi Manus Friedman. He said, "Rosenfeld attended a Habad Yeshiva when, while also enrolled at Boston University, it was almost like I was in both of them at once." He said, "His journey to comedy began. His journey to comedy was more unconventional. He began his career as vice president of Merrill Lynch in New York." I was working in the international division where there were many people with different accents, he recalled. I would imitate them to my friends when we hung out. and My friends said, you should do this on stage. Roosevelt decided to try his luck at a stand-up comedy club on an open mic night, a performance he vividly remembers. I was there in a suit because I had come from work and I was watching the other com- uh, comedians as they were bombing, he said. And then I went on and something felt very natural and great. The club owner said, you should come back and do this again. And that's how it all began. When someone suggested he perform in resorts in the Catskills Mountains, a traditionally Jewish vacation destination, he replied, just call me Moses. After balancing stand-up and Wall Street jobs for some six years, Rosenfeld went into full comedy, comedy full-time. He said his career started taking off in spades, When he incorporated more of his judaism into his act some years ago then he's since then he's been selling of venues worldwide including including uh in israel and for jewish groups such as young israel congregations and the republican jewish coalition he also performed on mainstream platforms including cbs nbc hbo comedy central and the howard stern show where he and the shock jock saying the blessing that is chanted before a torah reading howard is a big jewish soul rosenfeld said his approach to his approach to his diverse groups is to know your audience he continued i feel that what the room needs what jokes should be able to work and deliver them as for his non-jewish audiences he performs Jew, the jewish material that they would understand it's often more feeding uh, off the stereotypes they might have about Jewish people and take it from there. Rosenfell has joked about everything from J-swiped to his Israeli mother. During a recent performance in South Florida, he quipped uh, of Jews, "What does the wor- Why does the world hate us? We're the only religion not looking to recruit people. Every other religion's main goal is that you join. We're the opposite. Our main goal is just leave us alone, according to the Boca Raton Observer. Rosenfeld is also a Hazan, having studied the Belt, at the Belch School of Jewish Music at Yeshiva University and sometimes sings at his modern Orthodox shul, the Sixth Street Community Synagogue in the East Village. He lays tef- Teflon daily and keeps Shabbat as well as a kosher home with his husband, Viega, who was raised Catholic but now knows considerably more about Judaism than the average Jew. On stage and off, the comedian hopes to channel what he calls Moshiach, Messiah energy and into the universe. It's about working to bring light into the world, he said. Hopefully I can bring positive Jewish energy to both Jews and non-Jews. Comedy, he added, is a calling. It's a way to help people spiritually, which is what the Talmud talks about. I'd say it gives me a high. And that was Modi by Naomi Fefferman from the entertainment section. All right, here is something from the community section. This is called Meet Beaumont Shapiro, the new rabbi in residence at the Skirball Cultural Center by Casey J. Adler. Does a Jewish museum need a rabbi if its mission is to build a more just society and the Skirball Cultural Center believes it does? On June 5th, 2023, Skirball will welcome Beaumont Shapiro as its first ever rabbi in residence. This momentous position will mark a new chapter in the Skirball's long-held tradition of engaging the Jewish community and broader public. Its tenant mission is to foster human connections and build a more just society. At a time of social unease, where building cultural bridges and community relationships is more important than ever, the Skirball Center believes there is not a better leader suited for the job than Rabbi Shapiro. Shapiro, who holds a master's degree in Hebrew letters from Hebrew Union College and degrees in religious studies and cinema television from USC, will bring his wealth of experience and vision to the Skirball Center. He will provide guidance in Jewish history, ritual life, and philosophy, and will represent Skirball to the larger Jewish community. In speaking with Rabbi Shapiro, he sees his role as that of a Jewish ambassador, where questions and intentionality Uh, rather than rather than dictates will guide his leadership style i don't see my i don't see my role as providing answers or telling people what to do rabbi shapiro said over zoom i see it far more as being a voice at the table to ask the question how are jewish values jewish ethics jewish traditions and jewish culture being represented in this particular program or this particular opportunity to help shepherd these questions and conversations with our incredibly talented professionals in every department. Are we uh, doing it in a way we want to, we mean to, so that we're being deliberate about it and it's not, hap- and it's not happen- happening accidentally? Jesse Kornberg, president and CEO of the Skirball Cultural Center, echoed Shapiro's sentiments. We imagine this position as essentially an internal consultant, somebody who could partner with each of us as we imagine how to direct a museum Jewishly, how to build a hospitality program Jewishly. Asked what makes Shapiro stand out in the crowd of eligible candidates, Kornberg replied, we look for all kinds of skills and experiences. The ability to be a teacher, a partner, a collaborator, a representative in the community, a deep thinker, and a person who takes action from the heart. And Rabbi Shapiro's all of those things to be sure. A part of his mission as the new rabbi in residence, will be to expand the relationships with the broader Jewish community in order to provide a rich wellspring for cultural and secular Jews. Skirball is uniquely positioned to speak to and engage the overwhelming majority of Jews, Shapiro said. In Los Angeles and in the world, who identify as cultural or secular Jews who are largely not going to walk through the door of the synagogue, at least not anytime soon. And that doesn't make sense that doesn't make those people any less Jewish. What might sound odd for a rabbi who spent his entire life in the synagogue world. And I think though those people are still looking for ways to experience their Judaism and Jewish culture, Jewish identity, and Jewish traditions, and they don't have a lot of places to turn. In addition to reaching out to the broader Jewish community, Shapiro will also foster inter, intercultural bridges with Skirball for the past two decades Shapiro served as the rabbi for Wilshire Boulevard Temple, where he led the beloved institution through remarkable growth and change. During his tenure, he created and oversaw the founding of the Karsh Family Social Service Center, a nonprofit, nonreligious organization serving Koreatown, one of the most diverse communities in all of America and an economically challenged neighborhood with a wide scope of critical needs, including parent and child well-being, pro bono legal services, food and nutrition security, and health and wellness. The Karsh Center is only one example of Shapiro's myriad of organizational involvement. He currently sits on the Interreligious Council of Southern California, the Professional Development Committee of the Center Conference of American Rabbis, and the Board of N-E-C-H-A-M-A, Jewish Response to Disaster. Building a more just society is the hallmark of many great spiritual leaders, which is a value at the heart of the Skirball Center, Kornberg declared. Pursuing justice is one of six essential Jewish values that the Skirball has named as its institutional values. Welcome the stranger, show kindness, seek learning, build community, honor memory, and pursue justice. Rabbi Shapiro counts on the the 20th century civil rights icon, Rabbi Joshua Heschel, and the 12th century philosopher and scientist Maimonides as meaningful Jewish leaders, who continue to inspire him. In responding to what a just society might like, Rabbi Shapiro extemporized. Eli Wiesel famously said that the mission of the Jews has never been to make the world more Jewish, but to make the world more human. Certainly, working toward a more just society, pursuing justice in the world, Judaism does not have a monopoly on that. Nor should it. We need everyone out there who cares and who is willing to engage in this work to do that. And it is at the same time a deeply rooted Jewish imperative to seek and pursue justice. And there are so many injustices in our world. It's overwhelming. It's frankly impossible, I think, to address all of it, to fix all of it, as it were. And I think it's very easy for that to lead to paralysis. The world is so broken. And it needs so much fixing that one person or one organization in Los Angeles might say, what are we going to do? We can't fix it all. And interestingly, Judaism, Judaism's answers to, uh, to that have, has, al- has always been, you're right. But that doesn't stop you from being obligated to do what you can. Just because the task seems great and overwhelming, that's not an excuse to sit on the sidelines. Your obligation is to do what you can do to uh, to work towards justice. A teacher of mine used to say that our job is to tend to the part of the garden we can reach. So the mission doesn't say to achieve justice, it's to work toward it. It's a constant aspiration. And so what does that look like? I often think of injustice in the world as a state of imbalance. It's a state of imbalance that some of us are lucky enough, blessed enough, privileged enough to have kitchens and pantries filled with food and be able to wander in and cook whatever what we want for dinner tonight or decide, you know what, none of this looks good, I'm going to order DoorDash. Or, no, I'm going to go out tonight. And then others in the world are going to bed hungry. In a world, by the way, in which hunger is no longer an issue of supply, it's an issue of the allocation of resources, that's an imbalance in my opinion. If you think about the scales of justice, how do we restore balance? I'm not sure that we, that we need to remove or take away anything from those of us who have kitchens full of food. But what can we do to try to restore some of that balance in the world? What can we do to try to say it's unjust that someone who needs to see a physician can't, someone who wants their kids to get a good education can't? I think a lot of it's opening the conversation. I think that Skirball is uniquely positioned to be a place where incredibly diverse and different individuals and groups of people from all walks of life and all cultural backgrounds, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds can engage in these conversations. I can think of another Jewish organization, Jewish institution that exists at the intersection of the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world in such a robust way as Skirball where Jews and non-Jews at least have the potential to come together, if not in the best sense of the world, collide, to experience one another, to learn about one another, and ultimately to work together to shape the society and the world we want to live in. Kornberg added, the line of scripture we quote here to help us understand how we want to pursue justice at the Skirball is that which says, you shall not stand idly by while your neighbor bleeds. That's what justice means. Currently on exhibition at the Skirball, visitors can explore the history of the Hollywood Blacklist, a period where Jewish creatives and executives were targeted. Now on view through September 3rd, 2023. That was Meet Beaumont Shapiro by Casey J. Adler from the Community section. The Skirball is located at 2701 North Sepulveda Boulevard in LA 90049. Museum hours are Tuesday through Friday, uh, 12 to 5 p.m., Saturday to Sunday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., closed Mondays and holidays. Advanced timed entry reservations are recommended. For general information, the public may call 310-440-4500 or visit Skirball.org. we go going now to the theater section. This is called Transparent Siblings. A Transparent Musical based on the smash television series Transparent hits the stage by Naomi Pfefferman. There's nothing more Jewish than this play, said creator Joey Soloway of A Transparent Musical, which runs through June 25th at the Mark Taper Forum. It's based on Soloway's multi award winning hit Amazon television series Transparent, a groundbreaking show that helped introduce transsexual life and issues into popular culture. During its run from 2014 to 2019, The series spotlighted the Jewish uh, Pfeifferman family whose parent comes out as a transgender woman at 67. There was also a rabbi character, a Passover episode as well as the Pfeifferman's visit uh, visit to Israel during season 4 where they encounter the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as well as Jewish issues. If you think the TV show wasn't Jewish enough, this musical has all that, Joey said. It's 50-50 Jewish and queer, Joey's sibling, Faith Soloway, who wrote the musical, the music and songs for the production, added during a telephone interview with Joey at the Los Angeles apartment building they're sharing with the show's cast. Joey's identi- identifies as transsexual and Faith as transsexual and non-binary, not identifying with either male or female genders. Both use the pronouns they and them. The siblings were alternatively hilarious, soulful, and irreverent during a recent phone interview. At one point, Joey teased me that she named the five Amendments after my own surname. She didn't. We set the musical in a meeting at a Jewish community center that has a temple, a Hebrew school, and a burgeoning reckoning of its own identity, Joey continued. The subject is the conflict between the JCC and an LGBTQ group. And then, through a ma- maniacal beanbag, ma- magical beanbag, We we move all the way back in time to Weimar Berlin and really move back and forth between 1930s Germany and a JCC in Los Feliz which we comedically call the CJJJCC. There are a lot of Yiddishisms and everyone talks Jewish. In the musical, the youngest of the three Featherman siblings, Ali, who came out as non-binary on the TV series, and is portrayed in a musical by the non-binary actor Adina Versen visits 30s Berlin and discovers a thriving non-binary community on the cusp on the rise of the rise of Hitler. And so, Faith said, we're really able to go right to the heart of fascism, white supremacy, and misogyny, and to figure out what transness and Jewishness have in common. You can see the Nazis' comparisons between Jews and deviants. It's an emotional awakening that I think is too didactic, to-do in dialogue, but actually perfect for our songs. Not surprisingly, one song is titled Deviant. I really tried to serve each song in a genre that I felt matched with uh, with emotion, added Faith, who also composed music for the Transparent TV series and was a writer on the show. It's comedic, but it's also serious. The music might present a song that seems like it's out of the producers or old Broadway or Borscht Belt comedy, and then and then the next song might sound more intimate and haunting. The music almost has this identity that's not quite binary as well. Faith, 59, and Joy 57, were raised in a Jewish home in Chicago where their parents worked in a theater on the south side of the city, and the siblings listened to soundtracks from musicals such as Hair, Feather on the Roof, and Jesus Christ Superstar. We lived in a world of musicals, Faith said. Regarding Jesus Christ Superstar, Faith added, we found ourselves asking the questions, why do the women have to anoint Jesus' forehead and wash his feet? We wanted to be Jesus in that musical and the disciples as the people who were going to save the world. Joey joked, you're saying we had a Messiah complex at a very young age. Years later, Joey was inspired to create the Transparent TV series after their own parent came out as a trans woman at the age of 67. That proved to be quite a shock for the siblings, who now call that parent Moppa. I think that those emotions are so big that they're all really in the heart, Joey said. It was such a huge thing. I thought of myself as cisgender at the time. I identified as a woman. I had another name, Jill, and was married to a man, so I was trying to promote the TV show without talking about my own family. It was such a different time. It was a world where Transparent hadn't premiered yet, so he didn't feel safe. My siblings gradually came out as trans while working on the TV show. Faith later reflected on a time in my life that I struggled. If I had the tools, the medicine, and the therapy, I understand that I could have have transitioned when I was young. I probably would have. I went years and years with all that trapped inside of me. I first came out as a lesbian, but I still questioned whether I should get surgery, whether I should start hormones. I don't have... I know I have some anxiety and depression, don't all Jews? But I know that a lot of mine is related to having, uh, as having, having had to present a gender that I knew wasn't right for me. While Faith is less Jewishly observant, Joey has long been deeply involved in the Jewish community in Los Angeles, having co founded the progressive organization East Side Jews at the JCC in Los Feliz. Joey observes Shabbat and also sits on the board of Temple Nefesh in Los Angeles, among other activities. Faith believes it was only natural to transform the TV show into a musical because the emotional beats felt like songs. While Joey was initially chastised by some for casting a straight male actor, Jeffrey Tambor, to portray Mara on the TV show, the play features performers who are 75% trans or non-binary. The soloists view the musical as a form of protest against officials such as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis who wants to introduce a number of anti-trans laws. Holy S, we have them running on our own trans kids being taken away from their parents, Faith said. How can we wrap our heads around that? This S is rising again, and for us to show this moment before the Holocaust in 1933 when people there were so proud to be queer, it's like we're sending up a warning signal or or flare. We're doing it, in part with comedy. And you cannot walk out of this musical without seeing the parallels between then and now. That was Transparent Siblings by Naomi Pfefferman from the theater section. And now here's a section called the Mensch section. And this is called Celebrating Temple Menches. Rabbi Ronald, Ronald Reagan once remarked, Well, we wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice to hear a little more about the forgotten heroes of America? those who create most of our new jobs like the owners of stores down the street, the faithfuls who support our churches, synagogues, schools, and communities, the brave men and women everywhere who produce our goods, feed a hungry world, and keep our families warm while they invest in the future to build a better America? That's where miracles are made, not in Washington, D.C. And indeed, with each temple or synagogue, miracles take shape. These sacred spaces rely on tireless dedication of volunteers who serve on the Board of Trustees, act as lay leaders, and support the overworked staff. These exceptional individuals, these menches, go above and beyond to ensure the thriving of their communities. To shed light on their invaluable contributions, we approach a few esteemed rabbis and executive directors who graciously share stories of some of these unsung heroes. The individuals mentioned below represent just a fraction of the many deserving mensches who should be honored. If you would like us to highlight a mensch online or in a future issue, please send your nomination to us at info at jlivingmedia. That's info at j-l-i-v-i-n-g-m-e-d-i-a. Temple Mishkan Tefilo, nominated by Rabbi Joshua Katzen, Jeff Gornbean most synagogues aspire to be to the claim of being warm and welcoming, but the reality is dependent on the individual in the synagogue and the vibe they create. My own synagogue would not be what it is without the warmth sincerity and genuine menschlike of our member and volunteer Jeff Gornbean beyond his personal commitment to opening and closing the building on Shabbat to leaping up when extra hands are needed to set up or clean our kiddush lunch and to coordinating our Torah readers, Jeff and his wife Frederica are legendary greeters and welcomers. I know of many individuals who have been members for over a generation because of their first impression of how they were received and greeted by Jeff. Most of them were immediately invited to Shabbat dinner or a holiday meal upon their first visit to the congregation. To be warmly received, in a new or foreign environment, is one of the most healing and holy experiences we can have. There are few people who so naturally embody the essence of menschlikite decency and living the spirit of Jewish law, as does Jeff. Our congregation would simply never have earned its reputation for being as truly warm and welcoming as it is without him. It is with deep gratitude that we celebrate Mishkan Tafilo's unsung mensch, Jeff Gornby Temple Kol Tikva, nominated by Rabbi John Hannish. Lorreen Waterman, executive director. Lorreen served as the temple president prior to becoming a professional Jew. She has guided the community in both roles. Her focus has always been to help form a joyous community, or as she puts it, we need some kumbaya in this program. Her focus is on community and making sure that every member's voice is heard and that everyone feels the joy of being a part of her community. Tina Degon, Religious Acting Chair. Tina oversees every detail of Kol Tikva's spiritual life. From working with clergy on the yearly calendaring to making sure that a 1,000 electric candles are placed on the sanctuary floor in order to create the right feeling for Selikot, her energies never flag. Because of her deep love of community and her commitment to fulfilling every given goal, She is Kol incoming co-president for the next two years, but she will always be a lifetime blessing to the community. Clifford Blackman Maintenance. Clifford's work is head and shoulders above past employees. Soft-spoken in nature, he is typically either the first or the last to leave Kol each day, often staying late into the night preparing the temple for its next day of programs and services. Every request made is always fulfilled and often his actions are based on what he feels needs to be done. As a small congregation, everyone knows him and understands the depth of his commitment to making Koltikva thrive. We could never say thanks enough to a man who is committed to our congregation. Wilshire Boulevard Temple, nominated by Executive Director Donna Naddle and Associate Executive Director Jody Berman. Lizzie Green. Lizzie Green grew up at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, is now head of our volunteer engagement at the Karsh Family Community Social Service Center, where she creates meaningful volunteer opportunities that produce life-changing results for the Karsh Center's diverse clients and our neighbors in need. Kathy Gordon. As head of Wilshire Boulevard Temple's religious school, Kathy is a passionate Jewish educator who has transformed the religious school experience. Developing innovative programs and inspiring approaches to religious school, from elementary grades to can't-miss teen programs throughout high school. Deborah Dragon. Congregant and board member Deborah Dragon provides deep knowledge, wisdom, and experience in Jewish education, marketing, and public relations, and as such, is a valued advisor to all of our schools as well as the temple. For me, it is her thoughtfulness, logic, and calm, rational demeanor that stands out to me. Never lost in all of her dedication and involvement is her own family, her number one commitment. Ivan Vargas. Ivan is as a problem solver who in his role in accounting works tirelessly to understand the operating needs of the organization and find ways to balance vision and budget to fulfill our mission. Temple Ahavat Shalom. Nominated by Rabbi Becky Hoffman. Debbie Lieber, Debbie is a gem of a human being. As president, she has been the heart and soul of TAS and does everything with a smile and a generous compliment. Debbie has the kindest heart and a beautiful, uplifting smile, uplifting spirit, that is. We are proud to call her president. Lorraine Miller, Lorraine goes above and beyond to make everyone feel engaged, warm, and welcome. From being the queen of volunteer work to groups and hover to sisterhood and various committees, Lorraine does it all, and we are honored to have her as a valuable part of TAS. Larry Pfeffer, from being president of Motas Men's Group, a board member to our main IT person, and one of our greatest problem solvers, Larry helps TES run it like a well oiled machine, and we are grateful for the mensch that he is. Sephardic Temple Tifreth Israel, nominated by Avi Levy, Director of Operations. Ray Cohen, Current Vice President of Membership and Sisterhood President. Ray is always around to help, from cooking our Shabbat Kiddush lunches to making sure all our events are set up properly. Ray has been a vital board member for over 20 years, and her dedication to our community is amazing. Nita Roshani, Member at Large. Nita and her family have been members for about 10 years. She continues to assist in any way possible with events and overall marketing and communication for the temple. She has children who attend our Hebrew school and is dedicated to growing our community with more families. Cameron Farjam, current vice president of operations and past president. Cameron is our past president and currently serves as the VP of operations. He handles the maintenance of the entire building and is currently managing the sanctuary remodel project. Cameron is known for putting Sephardic Temple first when it comes to getting things repaired. He is the name behind the scenes, making sure our temple looks clean and is running smoothly. And those are Celebrating Temple Menches from the Mensch section. Right, and this last section here is called the Destination section. And this is called Family Spirits, a o- Hollander distillery, an oasis in the hills and the author is unknown as we are sitting and talking with Ronnie about Hollander distillery we are told the story of both histories the birth of israel and the raw entrepreneurship of this generation as we revel in the story we are equally captivated by the delicious spirits that are being presented by our gracious hosts venturing through the winding road the winding road in the hills outside jerusalem we arrived at a small oasis on the Moshav Beit Mayer, the large garage door swung open, welcoming us into a tasting tour. We settled on a small patio adorned with picnic benches, offering a delightful view of screen, serene green hills and fruit trees basking in the afternoon sun. Leading our tasting experience was Ronnie Hollander Moradi, the fifth generation of Hollander distillers. With a passion to revive the Hollander name in the world of quality liquors, Ronnie greeted us like old friends curating a flight of liquors tailored to our American preferences. Pour number one was Pink Lady, a passion fruit rum. Its sweetness, complexity, uh, and freshness instantly hooked us. Ronnie explained the meticulous process of sourcing local Israeli fruits, ensuring the highest quality ingredients for their spirits. The majority of ingredients are sourced from nearby Israeli farmers and carefully selected and handled to extract the perfect flavors. Pour number two introduces us to grapefruit and hops, an instant favorite that we envision as a perfect spritz. Savoring the next glass, we immersed ourselves in the Hollanders' history as Ronnie shared their remarkable journey. It all started as a family-owned winery and distillery in pre-war Czechoslovakia. Ronnie proudly spoke of her great-great-grandfather and his daughter, Leah Rose, an Orthodox woman who defied traditional gender roles and became the driving force behind the operation. However, World War II disrupted their plans, forcing them to flee. As they left the business, they gave the keys to an employee to safeguard. On his transport, Leah's father's ship was caught, and he was placed into an Italian detention camp where he used his distilling skills to provide for the camp guards, ensuring... Is survival after the war they returned to the family's vineyard and was met by the employee who gave them the keys back very shortly thereafter the communists in power expropriated the business and the family knew it was once again time to leave determined to start anew they embarked on a journey to Australia but decided to stop in Israel on the way at the time the war of independence started and tragically claimed the life of their relative Yossi the family met and decided that they were not going any farther and that Israel would be their new home. Poor number three unveiled the tantalizing flavor of ginger and lemon on sparkling on sparking ideas for signature cocktails. The family rebuilt their lives in Israel but did not return to distilling until 2012. They began to acquire the needed machinery and the cumbersome paperwork. As they began to refine their product, our launch date of 2017 seemed within reach. However, they faced setbacks when arsonists set Israel ablaze in November. Their small town lost many homes as the fire swept through the area. Undeterred, the Hollanders once again rebuilt, only to face the unexpected obstacle of a global pandemic, reshaping the marketplace. Another challenge, another day. Ford number four intrigues us with its unique blend of coconut and pumpkin developed for a family member it stood out as the only drink not to use Israeli ingredients its taste evokes a love-hate reaction different from the other offerings Ronnie had left us for a few minutes to help a worker tend to a newly planted plum trees and the newly planted plum trees and grapevines before returning with some schnapps to dry to try by the time by this time Ronnie's return felt like a long lost cousin coming back to the table and our conversation turned away from the distillery and onto the challenges of managing a business. With two kids under two international distribution hurdles and being a woman in a male run industry, each of the challenges was presented with a bit of nonchalance and presented as new opportunities to accept and conquer. Pour five and six brought us apricot and etrang schnapps. At about 40% alcohol, these spirits were a much more potent sip than the previous pours, which averaged around 18% alcohol. Ronnie smiled as she usually serves the schnapps for her European visitors, but wanted to make sure we tasted the full range of products. After a light snack, I can't help but mention the savory boozy fruit jam and crackers that accompanied our tasting. As we had finished all of the drinks, it was time uh, to tour the distillery. We were captivated by the seamless blend of traditional techniques and the newest equipment, showcasing Hollander's dedication to crafting a consistently exceptional product. Hollander's distillery is defined by its commitment to quality, the spirit of Zionism, the strength of family, and the resilience to overcome challenges. However, beyond these defining elements, it is the product itself that truly speaks for itself that was Family Spirits Hollander Distillery and Oasis in the Hills Uh, author unknown from the destination section and those are articles from J living Mensch issue 2023 let's turn back to the Jewish Journal for June 16th through the 22nd 2023 with the table for five weekly partial one verse five voices section Edited by Salvador Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist, Shalak numbers thirteen thirty. Caleb hushed the people before Moses and said, "Let us by all means go up, and we shall gain possession of it. For we shall surely overcome it." Ilana Wilner, Judaic Studies Teacher and Israel Guidance, Ramaz Upper School, N.Y.C. This week's parsha features the infamous story of the sin of the spies. I've been told this story in parsha class many, many times. I know it by heart and I know Caleb and Joshua are two of the spies that stand up to the others. However, actually taking time to read the story, it's a bit different than what I remember. Our pastor highlights Caleb's heroic words. He silenced the group and reassured them that they can conquer the land and God will help them. Caleb is the one who stands up to the spies. Joshua doesn't react until the complaint turns into a rebellion and yet they both receive praise and the reward for their bravery. Caleb is portrayed as an independent leader whose faith in God in the nation of Israel and in the land of Israel is beyond any doubt or question. Joshua, in contrast, is not a leader by his own merits alone, but rather by virtue of his mentor, Moshe. His actions in the episode of The Spies are a reflection of his loyalty. Joshua's bravery is subtle, and the message is self-evident, Be loyal and align yourself with people who are like-minded and have good values. Caleb, on the other hand, highlighted for me a unique nuanced message of speaking up in moments when the people around us, even our leaders, are silenced. Caleb is described as having a different ruach. I read this not as a spirit, but a voice. Caleb found his unique voice and the courage to speak up. Rabbi Natan Halivi, Kahal Joseph Congregation. The powerful inhabitants of Canaan intimidated the spies, causing their spirit to be weakened and doubting Hashem's power. They conveyed their fear to the nation, making them doubt Hashem, which was a grave sin. In sharp contrast, Caleb was empowered through his visit and became strongly connected to Israel. Caleb emphasized the importance of our faith in Hashem in a conquest of Israel. The conquest of Israel, which, uh, a land which a spiritual entity and unlike any other physical land. He cried aloud, saying, Is this the only thing the son of Amram has done to us? The nation assumed he would disparage Moses, whom they were upset with when they heard the spies' statements. They kept silent to hear his disparagement. Caleb said he did not divide the Red Sea for us and bring down the manna for us and collect the quails for us? Or did he not divide the Red Sea for us and bring down the manna for us and collect the quails for us? We can indeed go up, even to heaven, If Moses were to say, make ladders and go up there, we should listen to him because we would be successful in all his words and in all he bids us do. The Canaanite nations will not be able to stand up against us. With his words go up, Caleb alluded to the nation's connection with the spiritual power of the Shehina, Hashem's divine presence, which creates all of reality and is embodied in the land of Israel. Caleb embodies these aspects and thus merited to enter the land 40 years later, settling in Hebron, the city of our patriarchs. Rabbi Shlomo Yafi, Congregation B'nai Torah, Springfield, Massachusetts. The Talmud, Sota 35a, says in paraphrase, Caleb silenced. He silenced them, the spies, so that the people could hear what he was going to say to Moses, to hear what he, he would say about Moses. He cried out, Is this the only thing the son of Amram has done to us? Anyone listening might have thought that he intended to disparage him, and since there was resentment in their hearts against Moses because of the spy's report, they all became silent so they could hear his defamation. But instead, once he had their full attention, the people anticipating more uh, more calumny, he said, Didn't he split the sea for us, bring down the manna for us? Therefore, of course he can lead us to the land and enable us to acquire it. Although Caleb's strategy was ultimately unsuccessful, we learn an important lesson from here. Caleb obviously disapproved of the people's attitude towards Moses and God. Nevertheless, he started off by acknowledging the mental and emotional place they were in. This goes deeper than mere strategy. It is about understanding where another is holding and what their fears and conceptions are. Once uh, one acknowledges that he, she genuinely can stand, can, uh, can stand in their, their place, then that connection allows for the potential to move the others in a different direction. Caleb didn't change the minds of the people of Israel on that occasion, but he did show us the necessary path for creating positive change in others for all time. Rabbi Dr. Jason Weiner, Cedar sinai Knesset, Israel Not all commentaries read this verse in accordance with our translation. For example, Rabinu Ephraim offers a startling insight by reading the verse as Allah rather than alo, na'aleh. Thus, instead, by all means let us go up, the Torah is stating that he went up, referring to the angel Michael who already went up to Canaan before us, Allah, and there the land is ready for us to easily enter it, na Allah. The fascinating and unique interpretation explains why Caleb was so confident about the Jews' ability to enter the land. It was not their strength or strategic insight that would enable successful conquest, but rather the fact that they had already been there metaphysically. Consequently, their return to the land would not be as challenging as if they were entering Canaan alone for the first time. This idea reminds me of the way basketball players first imagine themselves making a perfect free throw before taking a shot. I get nervous before doing something for the first time. But usually once I've done it, I can repeat it with more confidence and success on subsequent attempts. Perhaps the message of Caleb's confidence here is that even when we are asked to do something for the first time, if it is a worthy action, we receive some sort of divine angelic support saying to us, I've prepared the way we've been there before, and therefore you can do this. Next time you're afraid to try something new, know that if what you're doing is a mitzvah, See it as though you've already accomplished it before, and there is divine protection leading you forward. Rabbi Nicole Gusik Sinai Temple Caleb is usually lauded as one of these spies who does not share a false report about who inhabits the land, and while this is praiseworthy, one has to wonder about his approach in trying to tame the crowd. B'nai Yisrael is swept up in waves of complaints. Perhaps the question isn't, why does B'nai Yisrael fall prey to their own insecurities, the question may be, why doesn't Caleb seek different ways of persuasion? Doesn't Caleb realize B'nai Yisrael isn't in a position to hear anything at all? The scene is a perfect lesson in any familial debate. There are moments in which our loved ones are at our present, open to differing thoughts and opinions. And then there's the opposite, the moments in which we must re- uh, evaluate when when, and where our views will be expressed and internalized. Safforno, the Italian commentator, explains that Caleb silences the cries of the people. They're scared, frightened, unable to think past the terrors that await them in an unknown land. Would Caleb have been more successful if he had listened first, offering his opinions second? Sometimes we feel as if we might explode if our views aren't immediately offered. And yet, the Torah reveals an often overlooked lesson. Take stock of the situation and environment is just as important as expressing one's thoughts. For that, for in that analysis, the assessment of when and where to speak may eventually lead towards settling in a promised land. And that was the Table for Five Weekly Parsha 1 verse 5 Voices section edited by Salvatore Litvak the Accidental Talmudist. And it was Shalak, uh, Caleb hushed. The people before Moses and said, "Let us all, let us, let us, by all means, go up, and we shall gain possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it." Numbers thirteen thirty. All right, let's go to the community section. R. F. K. Jr. I feel like we are going to win the primaries. By Brian Fishback, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had quite a week, and that's just with his social media accounts. On May twenty-seven, Kennedy tweeted praise of Roger Waters, the openly anti-Israel Pink, Boy, Pink Floyd musicians. And 8 days later on June 4, Instagram reinstated his profile after being expelled in 2021 for repeatedly posting what platform, the platform called debunked claims about the coronavirus or vaccines. Earlier in the day, June 4, Kennedy made amends for the Waters tweet when he spoke to author and former congressional candidate Rabbi Shmuley Boutique at the annual Celebrate Israel parade. As Boutique wrote in the journal, Kennedy explained that his tweet about Waters was in response to someone sharing with him a picture that Waters flashed of Bobby at one of his concerts, saluting the candidate's willingness to swim against social currents. Bobby told me he had no idea that Waters was a vicious anti-Semite, and when he studied the issue and the facts, he immediately deleted the tweet. I believe Bobby, and I thank him for his repudiation of Waters. Two weeks earlier, barely a month after announcing his campaign for the Democratic nomination for president, Kennedy held a fundraiser in Los Angeles at the home of podcast hosts Lowell Lowell C. Benjamin and Kathy Heller. Sitting next to Kennedy was his wife of nine years, Cheryl Hines. She wasn't the only Curb Your Enthusiasm star there. J.B. Smoove and comedian Elon Gold were among the attendees. Actresses Alicia Silverstone and Sarah Gilbert attended as well. After about 10 minutes, where he recounted his courtship with Heinz, Heller asked Kennedy about what his vision for the country looks like. I'm running because I feel like the country went off on the wrong track and we forgot who we were, Kennedy said. America was admired and regarded as a moral authority. and everybody, people wanted our leadership. They didn't want bullying and they knew the difference. Kennedy then uh, made the first of many mentions of his father, New York Senator Robert F. Kennedy and Uncle President John F. Kennedy. The next 20 minutes were a college lecture-style exoneration of his uncle's shortcomings during his three years as president. He went into detail about the CIA's failing failed Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. Then he went into an encyclopedic explanation of his uncle John's struggles with his own military advisors and Central Intelligence Agency as the war was in Vietnam heated up. He recalled the assassinations of his uncle John in 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April 68, and two months later, his own father. The 2024 Democratic candidate, 69, was only a 10-year-old kid when his uncle was murdered and 14 when his father was shot in Los Angeles in 1968, minutes after he announced his victory in the California Democratic presidential primary. It was all a preamble to equating the cycle of catastrophes over the last 60 years to the COVID-19 pandemic. The Vietnam War then followed until 73 and the 9-11 attacks and ultimately COVID, Kennedy said. And each of those dramas has pushed us further down the path, which is the domination of this country, that our country would would become imperial abroad and a national security state at home. And that's what the founders of our country have predicted. John Quincy Adams said, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Kennedy's most common refrain that day was his repudiation of how the leaders in the U.S. government handled the COVID-19 pandemic. They got rid of jury trials, the 17th Amendment, Kennedy said. They got rid of freedom of religion. They closed every church in this country for a year without scientific citation, with no democratic process, no notice, no environmental fact statements. They got rid of the right to assembly by telling us we had to social distance. They got rid of property rights. They closed down 3.3 million businesses without due process, without just compensation. They got rid of the Fourth Amendment, prohibitions against warrantless, warrantless searches and seizures, with all this track and trade surveillance and us having to produce our medical records to leave our home or whatever. And A lot of people would say, well, it was a crisis, but there is no pandemic exception in the United States Constitution. Kennedy explained the connection by citing the malaria and smallpox outbreaks during the Revolutionary War between 1775 and 1783, and how they were very much on the minds of the trainers of the U.S. Constitution when it was created in 1787. He also criticized the $8 trillion war in Iraq, which he said resulted in a destabilized Europe and the creation of ISIS. Kennedy seemed to be putting a lot of stock in looking back on the fateful year 2020. And then we spent $8 trillion on the lockdown, Kennedy said. He added that as a kid, everyone believed the government never lied. But then there was the CIA's false statements about the American U-2 spy plane crash in Russia in 1968 and the publishing of the Pentagon Papers in 1975. Americans started losing faith, Kennedy said, when my uncle was president. 80% of Americans trusted the government, today 22% and they're foolish people, he said to laughter. I can't tell my kids trust your government because that's a recipe for more disappointment and disillusion. But what I say to my kids is choose something that you believe in and let it consume your life. I was raised in a family where we were raised believing that our lives would be consumed by some great controversy and it would be a huge privilege for us if we were able to take an an effective form of living. About an hour and a half into the discussion, Kennedy made another bold uh, statement. I feel like we're going to win the primaries, Kennedy said. We're already developing a presence in every state. We'll have organizations in every state. I'm going to fight very hard in the initial five states, which are South Carolina, New Hampshire, Georgia, Nevada, and Michigan. He said at a Rasmussen poll that said he was statistically tied with President Biden. I think many Democrats will see that the, president, uh, that the President Biden has a very high chance of not beating Trump and that I have a very much better chance of beating Trump, Kennedy said. If you were Trump, who would you rather debate, me or President Biden? If he is elected president, Kennedy said that his top priority is going to be de-escalating comp- uh, conflict in Ukraine very quickly. If it is still going on, and assuming that we haven't had a nuclear exchange by then, and the and the destroy and the destroy planet, Kennedy said, China is a huge threat to us, but it does not want to confront us militarily. It wants to confront us and bury us economically, and it's doing it. And I don't have to. And I don't have any fear or any trepidation of going head to head with China on an economic deal. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be de-escalating the military and letting them know that's not an option for us. We'll fight for you with our entrepreneurship with America's special genius. That was RFK, I Feel Like We're Going to Win the Primaries, by Brian Fishbach from the Community Section. And from the Community Section here, welcoming Ukraine family who once saved two Jews. And author of This is Unknown. During World War II, two young Ukrainian Jewish girls managed to escape the Nazis before their family was marched to the forest and executed. They ended up seeking refuge with, with a non-Jewish family of a classmate, Nikolai Bogansha. The family hid the two girls and helped them find their way to an orphanage where they spent the rest of the war. The girls, Zana and Frina Ashkenaschia, eventually emigrated to America, where they both became acclaimed musicians, and the Bogansha family's courage was recognized by Yad Vashem when they were added to the list of righteous Gentiles. The story would have ended there, except for the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022. The current generation of Boganshas were forced to leave their home in Kharkiv. They settled in Austria. Alex Bogansha, an 18-year-old student, was able to find a sponsor and came to Los Angeles. His parents, Andre, an attorney, and Marina, a piano teacher and his 14 year old sister remained in austria meanwhile two los angeles congregations westwood's adat shalom and culver city's temple akiva decided to join forces to aid ukraine Renali Flug and sandy hellman two active members of the adat shalom community decided the best way to help was to sponsor a family from ukraine we did not know what uh, when we began how Large a family we might meet, Hellman said. Their history and age were not known, not whether they had children or spoke English. Working with I H, working with H I A S, a non-profit that has added refugees, aided refugees since the turn of the 20th century, the congregations heard about Alex and his family. When they learned about the family's history, it made their decision easier. In the process, Hellman told the journal we could help the family that helped Zana and Freena. Of course, the process is not that simple. There's bureaucracy and having to prepare the resources necessary to make the transition easier. Rescuing people is not a one-way street, Flug added. The family has to be happy with those who are sponsoring them. It's interesting that it works both ways. With the help of, IH, with, with the help of HIAS, Welcome Circle, they, help, they, they have raised money and local businesses have chipped in to help. Legacy Mattress provided some of the bedding and the Beverly Hills Bike Shop donated a bicycle for the family's use. Just after Passover, the congregations learned that the Bogachas will arrive in Los Angeles on June 1st. The story doesn't end there. There must be a housing ready for the Bogachas when they arrive. Rent is an issue. The apartment must be affordable. It also needs to be close to public transportation since the family will not have a car. In Culver City, settling in Culver City would place them near both synagogues to, so members could be helpful, Hellman said. It would also be near their son and close to schooling for their daughter. The biggest problem is that some apartment owners have a policy that tenants must see the property before moving in. Funds have been raised that should support the Bogachas for six months, giving them time to become self-sufficient. We had trepidation when we started this project, Halman said. Now we are excited. The parents are capable and willing to tackle the work. The project has a personal dimension for her. I have my dad's HIAS card when he came here from Poland in 1923. That was welcoming Ukraine family who once saved two Jews. The author is unknown, and this was from the community section. Let's uh, throw in an ad or two while we have the time. And we go to this one. Keep up with what's happening in town. jewishjournal.com slash calendar. And this one, advertise your product or service here in the Jewish Journal Marketplace. To preserve your market, Marketplace ad space, call 213-368-1661 add uh, space reservation and add material deadlines are 12 p.m on thursdays and let's get social keep up with the jewish journal on facebook instagram and twitter and folks it looks like that will just about do it for this edition of stan dunn's jewish edition so for everything that is happening with us jewish folk right here in the city the state the nation israel and the world find it all right here no matter what subject it is it can even be sports in the world of elected officials and it could even be a movie review so keep it all here until next time everybody this is your reader and host mark Braun saying to you shalom and of course peace